And, you know, which will you regret not doing more on your deathbed? That tells you, that points you towards the thing you should do now. Hey, everybody, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the show. That nugget of wisdom was from my friend Neil Pesricha. Now, Neil is a Canadian author who writes about happiness and being awesome. Uh, He's got a great franchise, I guess I would call it a franchise of books and journals around being awesome. Um, I first came at his work with around the happiness stuff, which Let's face it, we're heading into, at least up here in the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Hemisphere, we're heading into fall. It's getting darker. And at least I selfishly wanted to have him on the show because I could use a little bit more happiness. Uh, And one of the things I love about today's show in particular is it's incredibly um, tactical. It is specific, very, very specific things. You'll see this about Neil as soon as you, you know, listen to a couple minutes of the show. He's very tactical uh, oriented person. He wants to help us. And he puts out a ton of material in addition to the books that he puts out. He's a a regular writer, contributor, and he speaks all over the world specifically about these things, about acts of kindness, about uh, having relationships with your partner, with your children, uh, and other people in the world. He's got a couple of things that are of interest to me. One is his morning routine. And there's a a little, basically a two-minute routine that he does, two minutes uh, that do a a great deal to shift his perspective. I have adopted some of these things. It's a little bit of a hybrid of some of the things I've already, I already do, but I think you'll find value there. We talk about random acts of kindness. We talk about ways that, um, you can build resilience. We talk about the, the way that our jobs affect us and how so many of us now are shifting, whether this is seasonal, we're coming from being outside and inside or just, uh, the great changes that are happening in the job world right now and, and the role that that plays in our psychology, how to change and manage them. It is a fantastic, very tactically oriented show about being awesome and being happy. So I'm going to get out of your way. You're truly my friend from Canada, great Canada, uh, Neil Pasricha. <laughs> Neil, welcome back to the show, man. It's been a minute. You are back. Chase, thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. Uh, we had a lot of ground to cover, and I kind of wish we'd been recording the past 20 minutes of our little <laughs> catch-up because I always find those things to be fun. And and yet, for some reason, I never hit record. So we're going to bring back some of that magic that's been going on for the past 20 minutes that we've been catching up. Uh, you got another book. You're fourth or fifth in the series. I've lost track because you're so damn prolific, <laughs> which is a huge win if you are a creator out there one of the reasons that our audience pays attention i'm telling you that you know being prolific is an incredibly valuable but give us you know orient us in time and space for those who may not be familiar with you or your work start off by by uh telling us a little bit more about you yeah absolutely my my, my mom was born in nairobi kenya my dad is born in amritsar india they had an arranged marriage in england my dad performed the hamburger test my my mom ate the hamburger proving she wasn't a vegetarian their second date was their wedding two weeks later they emigrated to canada in the late 1960s my sister and i were born here i was born 79 she was born 81 very, very lucky childhood. My parents doing all the hard work, a teacher, immigrant teacher, immigrant accountant. And things are going pretty smooth sailing for me until my late 20s. In my late 20s, in the span of a few days, I lost everything. My wife, who I'd been in a relationship with for four years, we just bought a house, we're talking about having kids. She told me she was in love with somebody else and she asked me for a divorce. Three days later, my best friend, Chris, who I went to Harvard Business School with, and he lived in DC as a, as a vice principal, he took his own life. And I was in a really bad state. I hadn't had any resilience training, put that put it that way, like through my life. I was I was relatively soft in terms of like the amount of childhood traumas I'd had, you know. So I this one this thing sent me reeling. I lost 40 pounds due to stress. I stopped eating. I stopped sleeping. I had to sell my house. I moved. I'm giving a eulogy to my at my friend's funeral. And it was weird because everybody at work was like, you look great. You know, what's your secret, right? I was working, I worked for 10 years in human resources at Walmart. I was, uh, the two most interesting roles I had were director of leadership development for the company and um, project manager to our CEO. So what did I do? Uh, what did I do, Chase? I started a blog. This was the blogger days. I'm talking 2008 vintage here. Oh, yeah. you go to, I, I know that vintage well. <laughs> you know the typing, how to start a blog into WordPress, into Google type. Clicking, I'm feeling lucky and starting a word. My blog was actually called 1000 Awesome Things dot WordPress dot com. 
right? Like the WordPress was right in the URL, right? And so I decided for the next 1,000 straight days to try to cheer myself up by writing about a simple pleasure. And while that that goal might sound, oh, wow, he really turns his head around. No, I mean, I, I was my first post was Broccoflower, the strange mutant hybrid child of nature's ugliest vegetables. I, I, I'm not lying when I say nobody read this blog except for my mom, but I always <laughs> joke that she sent it to my dad and my traffic doubled overnight. And then it was like 10 hits a day. And then I got, here's a couple throwbacks for you as well. I got on the front page of fark.com. F-A-R-K.com, which builds itself as the sixth largest social media site in the world. So this is like kind of like pre-Reddit and Dig even. Like FARC yep. was kind of like, you know, a links aggregator. Well, I got 50,000 hits in one day, Chase, on old dangerous playground equipment. My 700-word essay about the joys of burning your legs in hot slides and falling into cigarette butts. <laughs> that took my blog from a 10-hit-a-day blog to like a three or 4,000-hit-a-day blog. And then from there... Some Reddit hits and some dig hits turned my blog into like, I'm writing for an audience now, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 on a great day, visiting my blog to see what the daily awesome thing was. The blog won an award for best blog in the world from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences in 2009. I was flown to New York City. I got this award. I come home to Toronto. Agents are in my inbox, eager to sign me to a, you know, they sign with the agent, they take 15% and then they auction it to publishers. Five publishers bid on the blog version of, or the book version of my blog, which turned into a book that came out in 2010 called The Book of Awesome. So if you want my origin story, really everything starts in 2010 when that first book, The Book of Awesome, came out. A 400-page hardcover with literally just one to three-page essays of simple pleasures, wearing warm underwear out of the dryer, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding, hitting a string of green lights when you're late for work, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It was, it was relatively G-rated, but I had to, it was acerbic and sarcastic as well, because that was the state of my mind. I was kind of in a dour, depressive state. So I'm writing about positive things overtly, but I'm also like, if you read the book, maybe it resonated because it also is pretty, it's also pretty cynical, you know. Well, Even the word is, "awesome" I mean, alone was like slapped on it, you know. It's like well, this is kind of this is kind of to me part of what I have understood about you and your brand. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, you have, you know, your own personality as a lot of the you know online folks are. You are you. You have four kids under the age of six, I think, which certainly under the age drives of eight now. A lot, yeah, which yeah. Oh, under eight, okay, which certainly drives a lot of um, of who you are, but also this, this joy part, this, this foundation, the awesome series of books. I know you've got journals and kids books and all kinds of stuff. Uh, you got a new one out about our book of awesome. And mm -hmm. speaking of going back to the little things, putting warm underwear on after it comes out of the dryer, I want to start our conversation around gratitude and uh, you know, you and I have long been champions of gratitude. But it is really, uh, I think, um, it is a cornerstone of many of the most happy and fulfilled people's lives. So I would like you to share a little bit about, well, I know you have some morning practices. Mm -hmm. um, we know, now know a little bit of your history around gratitude, yeah. coming out of grief and writing awesome things every day. But you formalized this now, and especially in your new book, Our Book of Awesome. And I'm yeah. wondering if you shared that. Start there. With the new book. With the new book. We'll just start yeah. about, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you've got to, you know, I know you have a morning practice. You've got yeah, a sure. dinner practice. I think yeah. some of this stuff is interesting because Absolutely. the concept of gratitude is nebulous unless we put a, a practice or a praxis to it. Yeah. So I'd like to hear that from you. Absolutely. So two quick spoiler alerts on that story is one i got i got remarried because you heard the four you you know people hear the four kids you're like where they came come from so i got got remarried and in the process of marrying my much wiser and smarter than me wife started writing books around happiness happiness equation resilience that's i think when we took book last time you yep. were awesome and i will also just add the second spoiler alert, which is i'm writing all this stuff not because i figured it out man like like most self-help is like the person needing it, right? Like Mark Manson gives a lot of fucks in online comments. That's for sure. Mark would tell you that himself. He's writing a book to tell you how not to do it, right? So yeah. Neil Pasricha is not the awesome guy. He's someone seeking it. 
And my method of seeking was trying to take what you call this nebulous practices of gratitude and distill them down into simple tactical habits we can actually do. I have two today that I actually three today that I kind of almost religiously do. Number one is I still write one awesome thing a day. It goes out, gets spits out in a 12 a.m. midnight email every single day. So it's not a huge email list, like how many people want to hear from me every day, right? But those that do get it. So I'm, I still force myself because otherwise I miss a day. There's an email coming out. That's the first thing. Second thing is, yes, I start my day with two minute mornings. What is two minute mornings? Well, I'm glad you asked. I don't sleep with my cell phone. Right now, 95% of people sleep with their cell phone within five feet of them. And if you ask them, Chase, what you did before bed, you know, set my fancy football lineup, answer the Instagram comments, see what's going on on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Same stuff, man. I'm checking my I'm so my boss emailed me, blah, blah, blah. Well, if we if we were like drinking a bottle of wine before bed every night, sleeping within five feet of a bottle of wine and drinking a bottle of wine when you woke up every morning, we'd have no problem calling you an alcoholic. Right now, our phone addiction is so invisible because we all have it. So my first thing is that phone's gotta stay out of the bedroom. I sometimes erroneously bring it up there. It's got to go back down. I keep my charger in the basement. That's my secret. Charger stays in the furnace room, the most disgusting cobweb-filled room in my house. So I don't want to kind of go back down to send a late night email that I'm going to regret anyway. So then when I wake up, I got no choice. I got nothing around me. I either get up and leave or I have this yellow book I keep on my bedside table called Two Minute Mornings. You can do it on a cue card. You just write down, I will let go of. I am grateful for, there it is, and then I will focus on. So I will let go of, we can go into the history on this, but it's, it's not just Catholicism, bless me, Father, for I have said, Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. Did you know almost all world religions have a form of confession or repentance like built into the practice? But did you also know the fastest growing religion in the world is none? None. The fastest growing religion in the world is none. So we aren't using these things. <laughs> And so you got to look at the science. There's a great um, uh, white paper in Science Magazine called Don't Look Back in Anger, which talks about how when you have less regrets as you age, you live more content. I find, and it might just be me, but I don't think it is, I always got something I'm stressed about in the morning. I don't know why. I will let go of comparing myself to Ryan Holiday. I will let go of the stress I feel about a book launch. I will let go of that nasty thing I said to my sister a week ago that I still haven't apologized for. I will let go of yelling at my kid last night that I shouldn't have done. There's lots of stuff, lots of, and the, the darkest stuff you don't even tell people. <laughs> it's just getting it off your chest, okay? Then I am grateful for. The research on gratitudes that I always quote is by Emmons and McCullough. And what they found is they compared three groups of people. Number one, you write down 10 gratitudes a week. Number two, you write down 10 events a week, just things that happened. And number three, you write down 10 hassles. These are three different groups. Over a 10-week period, the ones who wrote down gratitudes were not just happier, but they were also physically healthier. I tell people, this is the simplest go to the gym exercise. You don't, have, you don't even have to go to the gym. You, want, for, you don't got to buy the thing that shakes your belly fat off of late night TV. You don't even got to do nothing. If you just write down things that make you happy, you trip you trip area 17 in your visual cortex turns that your brain doesn't actually know where it is. So you think you're there again. But the secret of this research, I think, is that it's got to be specific. And most people, Chase, when you ask them to write down gratitude, they write down my husband, my kid, my dog. It ain't going to work. It's got to be when my husband Chase put the toilet seat down, when my five-year-old daughter Sonia like, learned how to ride with one training wheel, when the rescue puppy stopped peeing on my wife's pillows. Let's be specific. Okay, then I will focus on that's because of decision fatigue. I carve one thing I will do from my endless could do and should do. And I think of myself as winning if I just cross that one thing off the next day. And if I don't, I just write it down again. So it's a two minute investment. All three prompts are research backed. And in my mind, it makes you happier for the other 998 waking minutes. Did you notice my blog's called A Thousand Awesome Things and you're alive for a thousand months? That's a normal lifespan, a thousand months. And the average person's awake for a thousand minutes a day. And my podcast right now is counting down a thousand formative books. So I'm a side sidebar. I'm obsessed with the number 1,000. I saw the uh, your, your gratitude practice in the Harvard Business Review. And I'm a fan of things that are easily 
understood through a simple package. And that is one of the things that you've done. I was intrigued to know, you know, in looking back at some of your work at our previous conversations, um, there's something mentioned in your writing about a dinner practice. Yes. So that I would like you to also share uh, again in this yeah. world of awesome and yeah, yeah. one thousand and gratitude. So the, the dinner practice is dinner practice. The dinner practice I stole from my wife Leslie, and she stole it from camp. And at camp, when they were kids, they used to do something called rose thorn bud. You say your rose from the day, which is a gratitude or a positive thing. Your thorn, something that didn't go well, and your bud—that's B-U-D, something you're looking forward to. And I just added a second rose, and then I put my name under it. Okay. <laughs> Leslie and I joke about this all the time. She's she really is really writing all my books. I'm just writing them down. So it's rose, rose, thorn, bud. And what you do is it's very awkward. It's very awkward. Nobody wants to cut. I say to my five-year-old son, hey, what's your rose today? I don't know. Like no one wants to ha- start that. So you have to start yourself. Oh, you know what? Like I found a perfect red maple leaf. Uh, you know, it's my it's my rose for the day. What about you? And if you start there, then everyone starts to say a rose. We go around. We sometimes say like, did you say one yet? Did you say one yet? And if we have the energy, we do a second one. Then we say a thorn. And the goal there is just to listen, not solve the problem like you know, a lot of people want to do. And then a bud, something you're looking forward to. It doesn't matter if it's like make pancakes on Saturday or like rent a villa in Tuscany when I'm 100. It just can be something in the future. Um, I've been getting emails from people who do this practice, Chase, and people say, oh, I've started adding like a prick, you know, or I've started adding like, you can, you can take the, the packaged product that we're talking about today and make it work for your purposes. If you live alone, you might do it over FaceTime with your grandma. It's all good. But the point of it is that it puts into a simple way the, the thing we know that works, which is member 10 gratitudes a week is going to make you happier and physically healthier but you don't just carry around a journal. So let's make it a game at dinner. Rose, rose, thorn, bud, a simple gratitude day, gratitude game around your dinner table. Well, this is one of the things that I liked about that and why I wanted to capture it in our show here is we talk a lot about personal development and growth and presence and awareness and whatnot, but we also need to be teaching this to our kids and the next generation because we didn't have these things growing up. And that simple tool, a gratitude practice, as an example, I've shared mine online is transformative. It is, you know, in and of itself, it, that little package is a power, it packs a powerful punch. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I think this as a way to, you know, integrate the family, whether that's at the dinner table or the breakfast table. What's yours? What- I'm sorry that I don't know. Um, it's, it's basically similar. It's not two minutes. I call it 10. Uh, it's a version of what Tony Robbins puts out there, which is, um, there's a little breath work at the beginning. There's a gratitude, three things that you're really gratitude for. I actually send gratitude out into the world to other people, people that I nice. saw before who, who I feel like might be a need. Um, cause we all know, no folks like that, but similar it's under 10 minutes. Um, and you jump into a plunge pool at the end too. Uh, I usually do that before the plunge. Yes, I did that this morning. It's getting really cold, my cold plunge, because it's getting very cold up here in Seattle again. It's heading into that season. So uh, yeah, that's that's the first. And I do that when I'm intentionally sort of fuzzy. I often will combine that with, you know, 10 minutes of writing. Today, I only wrote two sentences in my writing because my, you know, my gratitude practice went a little bit long and I didn't have that much to say because I was anxious to get in the, actually get, I get in the hot tub first and then the cold plunge. So I was anxious to get in the hot tub, but it's a similar thing, right? I'm talking about a package package that, you know, again, mine is individual. What I was inspired by for yours and what I think the listeners might get out of is, you know, how you share this with your family at the table. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, And everyone's got just to throw another, you know, um, you know, wrench in here. My wife has been, cause this will probably be a thing I talk about later. My wife has introduced a new one called high, low Buffalo, where you say a high from your day, a low from your day. And a Buffalo is something interesting or strange or weird. It's just like the Buffalo, the surprise of your day. So that's just another one. If people, if people want to pick up, if people are right. collecting gratitude practice, we've now given you four. Okay. Right. Well, <laughs> it, one of the things that I'm aware of, uh, why gratitude, I think, has been, I think it was, it was, it played a role prior to the pandemic, but of course the pandemic was very hard 
uh, for a lot of people and the gratitude, you know, those who picked up or adopted a gratitude practice, I think the science is coming out that that helped during that very difficult time. And, and, uh, one of the other things that was going on was a lot of discontent with jobs and careers. And that's one of the major things that the people who listen to the show, watch the show, pay attention to because they are either um, on their own or have gone out on their own recently are aspiring to do that or are very entrepreneurial. They work at a company and they are looking to make yeah. make change and you know become a, a leader within an organization. And so as the counselor of awesome and someone who's written for, you know, I guess a decade or more on happiness, I'm wondering if we can sort of dig into a little bit of what you think with all of the career shifting that's going on. You, we hear about quiet mm -hmm. quitting and the great resignation, the great transition. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated about your mm. points of view around what helps pig, people figure out if they are in a happy role. Yeah, for sure. Um, I got lots to say about this. Two things I'll say. Well, number one is um, – um, for anyone that's right on the precipice of pondering uh, a change, like you have a bird in hand, which is your current role, and you have, uh, you know, you're going through an interview process maybe somewhere else, or you're thinking about making the leap and starting your own company, or you and a few friends have got a side hustle that you're wondering about leaning into, whatever. The two questions that I had, so I worked 10 years at Walmart, and before leaving Walmart in 2016 to do kind of writing full time, um, I called my old boss, who at that point was the CEO of Walmart International, okay? And so it was like hard to just get his time. But I got his time and I said, Dave, uh, Dave Cheese, right, is his name. I had just taken a sabbatical to like explore this. I'd come back, but I was very trepid. I was very, I have an East Indian background. My parents wanted me to be a doctor. I already failed by, you know, not being a doctor. Never mind not having a pension or benefits or a stable career, you know? So I was like, it's a pretty big leap for me. I called him up. I was like, Dave, how do I know if I should... Uh, quit Walmart or not? And he's like, there's just two questions. Number one, you got to do the deathbed test. Which will you regret not doing more on your deathbed? Okay. And you know, that, which will you regret not doing more on your deathbed? That tells you, that points you towards the thing you should do now. And then the second one is the plan B test. Like, what if this whole thing fails, Neil? What if you go out and be a writer and you suck at it or you don't get any speeches that pay the bills or blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, I guess I'll have to call you up again. <laughs> or I'll guess I'll have to dust off the LinkedIn profile. And he's like, well, do you think you could do it? It's like, well, at this point now, you know, 10 years of experience and, and I feel like I could go back and get a job. He's like, well, there you go. Those are the two. Those are the two questions. So I just want. So the first thing I want to say is, if you're on the precipice today, use those two questions as a bit of a guidepost to yourself, right? Uh, the plan, the the deathbed question, and the plan B question. Second thing, though, I'll say is, I don't believe that the fundamental things that we desire in a successful career, whether they are a one person company or you're working at two point five million person company like I was, really change. To me, I distill them down to what I call the four S's. Okay, there are the four things you need to have in a fulfilling career. The first one is social. We are social animals. Daniel Gilbert wrote the original book in positive psychology called Stumbling on Happiness. He's a very famous sentence in it that I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember off by heart. But it's like, if I can know anything, everything about you, your gender, your nationality, your religion, your income, all of that would fall away as a measure of your happiness in favor of the strength of your relationships with your friends and your family. That is the determining factor more than the other things. So we want to be social at work. I think that the move to hybrid and to virtual work has been uh, really devastating for a lot of our social connection and our social needs. And I see this in lots of places as a speaker. Like I used to speak down in Toronto here at Shopify at the lunchroom and like, you know, to get 500 people together and there's an energy and there's a, and I talked to them, I was like, Hey, I got a new book coming out. Our book of awesome is coming out December 6th. Uh, do you want me to come down again? Like it just, just, you know, pro, uh, for free. I just like, like to get out there and talk to them about the book. And they're like, we never get together anymore, <laughs> you know, ever. It's like, yeah. oh man, that, that sucks. That stinks. But we need social connection. Okay. There's a reason that some companies actually ask their employees, do you have a best friend at work? Or even do you have friends at work? It's as simple as that, social. The second thing is 
stimulation. We are learning animals. You know this better than almost anybody. We crave learning. Are you learning something new every day? And if you aren't learning something new every day, are you learning something new every week? If you are atrophying in your role, it's a sign that it's time to move. Okay, so just are you being stimulated? Are you being challenged? Okay. The third one I, I, I talk about is structure. I believe, well, I know every week has 168 hours in it. I believe it's nice to carve that into three buckets of 56. You got 56 hours for sleep. That gives you eight hours a night. You got 56 hours for work. That's eight hours a day, including eight hours a day on weekends, which you might not need, but depends on your job. And you got 56, which is your third bucket for anything else you want. My point is the work bucket and the sleep bucket pays for justifies and creates that third bucket. And for you, it might be the bodybuilding side hustle you're doing. It might be you're deep into fancy football. It might be raising your infant son. It doesn't matter what it is. But I think that most people, I used to say, oh yeah, uh, kids need habits. Kids need schedules. Kids need routines. Well, now I think Everyone needs habits. Everyone needs schedules. Everyone needs routines. So just having the structure of a reason to get up in the morning, a place to go, a reason to get dressed up kind of creates the fact that you don't feel guilty now when you do nothing from 5 p.m. to midnight or whatever that is for you. Okay. Structure. And the fourth S is story. Story. Am I part of something bigger than myself? Do I personally ascribe or align with the highest level purpose, mission, or values of the organization? And every organization has a purpose, its ultimate reason for being. Is that something that resonates with you? I will say at Walmart, I did get off on the fact that the goal of the company was saving people money so they could live better. Because, you know, partly maybe it was corporate branding or whatever, but, you know, at the shareholders meeting, you'd have like uh, people getting on stage saying like our family, you know, in Guatemala could afford, you know, to have Christmas this year because, you know, we were able to get toys for our kids, which you wouldn't get before because of Walmart entering. And, you know, you can kind of look at that kind of stuff and sort of be cynical about it. But from the company's perspective, and I was internal there, it really did feel like a real reason for being. You were lowering the cost of living. And if you didn't shop at a Walmart and you had one open in your community, your cost of living went down by like $2,500 a year, even even just by not shopping there. So this is kind of like pre-Amazon days. But at the time, Walmart was doing something that was something I could get behind. Um, if you can't get behind that high-level story of your organization, it's also a sign that you may not just be aligned with kind of the work you're doing. Together, those add up to social, stimulation, structure, and story. They're a quick little four-bullet test to see whether or not you feel congruent with the work you're doing. Nailed it. I had a cheat sheet in front of me, so uh, I could see those things. Again, there's a one of the sort of the key things that underpins not just this show, but I believe the lives of the most happy and most importantly fulfilled and successful, not just successful, fulfilled and successful people is some modicum of structure. And I remember early on in my creative career, just like, ah, you can't keep me down. I'm going to wake up and I want to, you know, oil paints one day and, you know, pictures the next. And when I'm, you know, inspired i'm going to chase it and what you come to find out is that's not actually true for the most happy fulfilled and successful people there's some modicum of structure in that i mean if you're listening right now and you're new to to neil you can already tell he's got a lot of structure in his life he sent me an outline of things that he was interested in like this you know this is the brain of someone who is organized and to that end the next thing I'm interested in hearing from your structured organization and also obviously wildly creative and your brain goes in a lot of different places. I want to talk about the relationship that you have as, you know, a very successful public speaker, author, you mentioned being at Walmart, transitioning into self-employed where you're writing and speaking full time. This by almost by definition changes the relationship that you have with the rest of your family, especially you mentioned your Indian heritage where you weren't a doctor and you didn't have a pension. Yeah. 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 And if I'm, you know, thinking about uh, one of the most important questions for listeners and watchers of this show, it is really around how do I have this relationship with my family? Because for many, their spouse or partner is frightened by the fact that they might not have this pension or they might, yeah, you know, as an independent artist, 
uh, again, whatever station in life you're at or wherever you are in your career arc, these, these stories and these relationships that we have with our families around our work lives, they can be yeah. different. But I was inspired and I remember we touched briefly on this, I think the last time we spoke, but I'm hoping you can um, reorient us towards the sort of quarterly meetings mm. that you have <laughs> yeah. with, yes. with your partner. Sure, absolutely. So first of all, I want to say thank you for the compliment around the sort of structure and systems. It, look, it's it comes from a place of uh, need and it comes from a place of not being that structured. Like it, these things are created as North Stars in my life. And do I always hit them? No. Do I always do two-minute mornings? No. Do I always do Rose Rose Thorn Butter Dinner? No. But by having them as systems and as North Stars, it, I'm always just improving along the line. So I don't want to uh, say that I'm perfect at any of this stuff. Um, now, on the quarterly meetings, okay, so... And this, just by the by, just to be clear, I'm using quarterly meetings as an example, but the macro yeah. point that I want to hear from you around is the relationship that you have with your family and, and, yes. your, and how your career yeah. sort of fits in there. Because for a lot of people... This is a big deal. If they want to go in this direction, this is the number one or number two blocker. Yeah. And if they are in it and they're not a good communicator about it, maybe a less good business person, like figuring this part out is is also a major challenge. So yeah. I'm using, I'm using your, your quarterly meetings as a as an example, but I know you talk about family contracts and nights yeah. away and special time yeah. and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what I do is at a high level, there's a couple of things that are happening here. Number one is I, I copied something. I, I, as you can tell, you know, most things I do or anyone does are really copies. But on the wall at Walmart, there used to be the company strategy. And in the center of a box that looked like this, okay, there was a square and it said, we save people money so they can live better. That was the highest level purpose. I like the phrase ikigai better, I-K-I-G-A-I, which is the Okinawan word for the reason you get out of bed in the morning. For those that don't know, Dan Butner and a team of National Geographic researchers studied the blue zones or the places where people live to 100 more than anywhere else. And guess what? In Okinawa, they don't even have a word for retirement. They don't have a word for stopping doing stuff. They only have a word called ikigai. Well, in the center... I write my ikigai, which is helping people live happy lives. So I, I write that down and I can change it on a, it might be getting my manuscript in or for the next month. You can make it more tactical if you need to, but just go up to the highest level reason for being for you. I'm not saying it's easy to come up with, but just gestate on it. I write that in the center. And at the, at the end of every month, I have a 12 bullet point thing. I write on a cue card, as you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube. And in the top left, I write down strong core. Well, this is the cash flow stuff, okay? So for me, it's like I write one chapter of a book, right? I um, record two podcasts of three books, my podcast, and I give four speeches, okay? Well, only the speeches of all those three things pay any money, but the other two things are ingredients to learning and writing and things that will eventually pay money. Or really, that's kind of the art I want to create, even though it's not monetized. And I do think for most people, the metaphor of, you know, an artist these days, like a recording artist, they put on an album that nobody buys, but then they tour for a concert and people line up to pay $100 for a ticket. So it's not dissimilar in the nonfiction book space where, you know, everyone's putting out books you know, it's pennies on the dollar for royalties, but it's a speech that is kind of like the touring part of it. Okay. We do really want experiential things. We need that human connection. So every month I write down either a green, yellow, or red dot beside those three things. Okay. Green means I nailed it. Yellow means I was close and red means missed. Okay. The top right is fastest learning. I talked about the ingredients towards the cash flow, but just think about the ingredients towards a life for a second. Every single month, I want to be the fastest learner I can. So, what does that mean? It means that I want to read eight books a month. I put that as my goal. That's two books a week. It sounds like a lot, but you know, if you cut out all your magazines, newspapers, and TV shows, it works. <laughs> you know, and, and so I do. I do read over a hundred books a year now. I copied Ryan Holiday's uh, monthly book club as a way to commit to it and send out an email list. That email list has grown by leaps and bounds over the years, and it's great because that provides even more motivation and pressure for me to read. Because now I have to tell everyone every month what I'm reading. Um, so I say that I'm going to read eight books. I say that I'm going to have one weird experience. That's an interesting one. Uh, every month I want to do something out of my comfort zone. 
It might be being at the mosh pit um, at a Flaming Lips concert and catching the uh, catching the set list after the show. Yeah, I got this after the show. They you know they put it out in the leaf blowers and they fire them from there. Uh, Flaming Lips are the best. My favorite band. Um, and then I and then I, I might put like you know two interviews. Okay, so this kind of feeds into my pockets. But that's all just learning stuff. Again, it's yellow, green, or red. The bottom right, and this is partly what you're asking about. I call it best family. Okay, so I want to think of myself as having the best family. Do I always nail it? No, but I say specifically, I want to have. F- Four or more, so greater than or equal to four, family days a month. A family day, as I define it, is a day where it's me, my wife Leslie, our four little kids, and nothing else. No screens, no interruptions, no visiting in-laws, no birthday parties, no, it's just the family is in like a cocoon. We could do something together, but just, and those days are really precious and profound, and they are nitro to the relationship. So I want four or more of those per month, and that works out to, of course, once per week. I want to be less than or equal to four nights away per month. So this is a real pickle. Um, We're speaking right now in November 2022. I gave 10 speeches in October. How? And, And why is there 10 more that I didn't do? Well, because I said to the speaking agent, I can't be away more than four nights. So I flew to Nashville and back, (laughs) you know, the same day to give a speech and said no to things that were really far away and did a couple that are local in Toronto. You see, so we, they kind of made it work, but I have a really hard and fast rule. I cannot go more than four nights away from my family. It leads to some crazy things like flying to Nashville at 5 a.m. and getting home at midnight and saying, I'm here when you really, you weren't really there, were you? Because I gamified my own thing. So you have to like look at the spirit behind the numbers, but the numbers help so less than or equal to four nights away and then the other one is uh four nnos so i'm neil so an nno is a neil's night off one a week four a month leslie gets an lno that's a, a leslie's night off. i have one tonight i have one tonight she had one last night last night she went for a birthday dinner with her sister and her mom okay so they're both their birthdays and tonight i haven't made plans yet um but a friend of mine texted me and i can actually do it even though i have kids because we want to have new stories in our relationship. We want to have new growth opportunities that aren't together all the time. So we have one night a week that's off and that fills us up in a different way. And then the bottom right quadrant of my now getting increasingly hard to read uh, little dashboard is called best self. This stuff is usually read for me. It needs to be better, but it's like, you know, uh, 12, 12 workouts per month, 12 cardios per month. Like it's, it's the, it's the, taking care of myself stuff. Okay. I write this dashboard at the end of every month and I color the little dots, green, yellow, and red. I have an example I can send you if you want to throw it in the show notes uh, for people to see. And I have an article I wrote about this from the Toronto Star. So that kind of governs me as a dashboard. The word dashboard is important by the way, because it, when I'm driving 60 in my car, I'm never, I'm never going 60. I'm going 64. And then I slow down a little bit or I'm going 50 and I speed up a little bit. Well, this is the same idea. You're going to have top left be all green, but then your bottom right, right's red. Or you're going to have the bottom right. You're taking care of yourself and your family, but now you stop making money. So you see, the whole point is not to get the whole thing green. It's just to steer. It's just a loose steering mechanism. Now, Leslie and I can't do anything unless we have some models around our lives. So one principle that we stole, again, from uh, Martin and Farah Perlmuter, who run a speaking agency called Speaker Spotlight. It's the largest speaking agency in Canada. Uh, They're a husband and wife. They own the speaking agency. And they said to us one night over dinner years ago, we think of Martin as CEO of the business and Farah as CEO of the family. And that stuck. And we use that now. And the reason it's effective is because they're both very lofty titles, (laughs) CEO, and they're equivalent titles. CEO. There's no one worth more than the other there, right? You're not overvaluing one, but they also then bake into the the definitive decision maker of both. (laughs) You know, Leslie will sometimes say, well, a CEO of the family, they can have dessert, even though I was going on on some rant about sugar, like I used something or whatever I was, you know, and she'll let me, she'll be like, oh, I'm CEO of the family. I don't care. I can have ice cream. Right. And I'm CEO of the business. So I'd be like, you know, I really, you know, this is a, this is a really, uh, I know it's a really hard trip, but it's really important for the book. And I know I'm going to miss that your sister's birthday party, but I have to do it. You know, so we can enable uh, each other to make the crucial decisions. And then we also have um, 
a date night once a week, which I want to tell everybody who has little kids who never has a date ever that this is so important to play for. It's worth whatever you'd pay in a babysitter. And it is so critical for us. A date night means more intimacy in every sense, like uh, intellectual intimacy, physical intimacy, psychological intimacy, all these things go up when you're together with the one person that you fell in love with that you forgot about because all week you've been chasing your kids or you've been working on your stuff. So you, for us, it's precious time. And if we don't get it, we notice if you miss our date nights for a couple of weeks. There's some little bickering starting now or like we're a little short with each other. Right. <laughs> and we have, as you mentioned at the beginning of this question, before I jumped into the other three models, we have a quarterly meeting. The quarterly meeting between us is a relationship meeting. We have this by definition outside of our house. I stole this idea, by the way, from Professor Dave Ulrich at the University of Michigan. He does this with his wife. Um, and everybody will have different topics that they discuss. Him, I believe the topics were, and he was open about this. He said they were um, money, time, sex, and family. It was like, those are the four big buckets. So money, like how often does a couple in a relationship actually sit down and say, so money, are you good? Are you happy with what we're doing here? Or do you, you think we're really rich or really poor? Or do you want to change stuff? Or this is where we might say, oh my gosh, we need to like think of a philanthropy strategy. Or we might think of like, you know what we're, we're, we're destitute here. I think you need to take a second job. Time to drive the Uber, right? Like whatever it is, you got to have that conversation. Sex goes without saying, if you don't have a place to talk about it, it could, it could wither away and die. And I say, this is someone who was in a marriage before this one. Okay. And then, you know, when we divorced, it was my wife whose idea was, I was just like, well, I guess no one. The joke is that you don't have sex in a marriage. Isn't that the joke? Like I, I, I was kind of clueless to the fact that like, no, no, you can <laughs> You have to just talk about it, say openly, you know, what we have to, and this things shift all the time based on age and who's breastfeeding and who's traveling and what, let's just talk about it, safe space. Then, and, and by the way, the conversations get more and more intimate, the more often you have them, right? So you can start off by just saying like, are you happy? And then you can, you know, by doing this after a year, you're now you're talking about like, you're doing like long quizzes and talking about kinks or whatever it is, you know, you go wherever you take it, it takes you. And then um, I think the last one was family. So this is a really healthy one, especially if you like us have lots of extended family, because I have found in relationships, it's just important and healthy to constantly discuss and examine how often do we want to see your parents? How often do we want to see your parents? How often do we want, if, if we don't make that clear to ourselves, then it will not, it will not be executed in a clear way. And it doesn't mean it's perfect. It just means let's at least talk about it. So for me, I'll just share openly. I'll just, why not? Um, I, I, you get me going, um, is we, we've decided that we're going to see my family every two weeks. That's I've, we've come up with a number that works for me. It works for Leslie. It works for my family. I've been open with my family about that. My parents, it's like every, every couple weeks we're going to see, and they live nearby, <laughs> they live nearby, but I'm not talking about like flying across the country here, but just having that as a rule of thumb is really helpful. And then we just examine it. They're getting old. Let's see. Let's make it weekly for the next year, you know, whatever it is. So that's where the quarterly meeting comes in. It's also and, a great time to talk about like, you know, uh, I really, really, really want to go on a vacation. <laughs> you said we read or whatever it is. You can bring it up there. Yeah. Know? Make them up with money or family or yeah, exactly uh, parallel parallels to go off on there. So I'm thinking again in service of our community and I mentioned earlier, one of the things I love about you and your work around the awesome, I might even call it a franchise. You're the awesome guy, you know, the happy guy. You get coined those things on, you know, television shows and podcasts and whatnot. Um, there are, like, it would be unfair to talk about all that stuff if you didn't talk about things that you should steer clear of or moderate, because we're talking about very proactive things, right? Making meetings with your family and yeah. uh, gratitude practices and very tactical. And again, yeah. this is one thing I love about your work is it's very organized. Um, let's turn our organizational or your organizational attention now, if we can, to some of the things that we should not be doing or things that rather maybe inhibit mm. or uh, uh, obfuscate mm -hmm. happiness for us. And I was mm. struck in your work around 
the talk about cell phones. And you already mentioned, you know, the, mm-hmm. this idea of not sleeping with your cell phone. It's not, it's not revolutionary. There's a lot of people who talk about that and, yeah. um, and who em- employ that as a tactic. Yeah. But I'm curious that you had something that struck my attention around the three P's of yes. cell phone. And you were very clear. You called it addiction. Yes. So these are things that, you know, this is maybe negative reinforcement. What are things we don't want to be doing? Mm-hmm. If happiness is important to us, what are three things, uh, the three P's of cell phone addiction? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, why am I so focused on cell phone addiction? As always, I'm addicted. Okay. So like, let's coming from a place of me noticing that the D score data which is a U.S. market research firm that says we touch our cell phones 2,500 times a day, which is more than, which is more more like a constant fondle. Um, I'm like, yeah, like I was like, that's true. Like I, <laughs> I wasn't like one of these people that's like, gasp, what are you talking about? I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, of course I'm doing that. So what are the three problems of cell phone addiction? They all start with letter P. Number one is psychological. This conversation is not big enough in society right now. We, everyone says this phrase, and I agree with this phrase, we compare our director's cut lives with everybody else's greatest hits, right? We know that. What we haven't yet examined, because we haven't had enough longitudinal data to see how it affects people that are like, you know, in their 20s or 30s or 40s now that kind of have grown up in this environment, is what does it feel like to know that you will never be the best at anything? What does that do to you? Because when I was a kid, Chase, I could see the best basketball player at my high school team. That guy was good. But I thought if I practiced every single day and I went to the tryouts and I could I could get there. Well, now someone's on YouTube with a blindfold on, showing, throwing basketballs over their head backwards from half court, getting swishes every time. What I'm saying is the bars have changed. You can never have enough likes, enough friends, enough followers, enough... You can never have enough. You called me prolific. And I said, I will let go of comparing myself to Ryan Holiday. Well, in my mind, he's prolific. You know, in my mind, that guy's putting out two books a year. I only have one every three years. You know, he's six times more books than me, you know. So, but for him, he's probably like looking at Joyce Carol Oates, you know, or whatever, right? Like I'm saying there's no end to how psychologically inferior you can feel. And that is devastating. It just really, really feels like a trap when you go online, because you're comparing yourself to the best in the world at all times. Psychologically, that's a problem. I believe that to be a big problem in society. I I feel like for a lot of people, that is very demotivating. It brings up the, why should I try? It brings that up. Mm. Because I'm never going to have a podcast as big as Chase's show. So why, you know, why start one podcast? I'm only going to get like 12 people listening. Why, Why start? And you, you therefore lose all the learning you would have got, the joy of doing it, the all, you know, all these other elements get dissipated because we are comparing ourselves. So psychologically, it's a problem. Second one is physical. I'm going to start with the actual body for a second. When you look at your phone, you're applying 60 pounds of pressure to your spine. Okay, that's the first thing. Second of all, you're really killing your thumbs. I went to the physiotherapist last week because my thumb stopped working. I couldn't move my left thumb. She says, all we're doing is thumbs now. All we're doing is there's like a little muscle in here that you're just killing when you do it when you're on your phone. So if your back hurts, if, if you're listening to this right now and your back hurts or your neck hurts or your shoulders hurt, I'm telling you the reason why is that we're crunched over these things. But here's another physical problem. Research from Australia shows if you look at a bright screen, I hate to say this number because it's shocking, two hours, two hours before you go to bed, your brain does not produce enough melatonin overnight. Your pineal gland and your brain does not secrete enough melatonin to have a deep, restful sleep. In fact, evolutionary biologists are now suggesting that when you turn off your phone, you get a boost of energy. Your primal brain wants to build a fire and set up your cave. So for millions of years, you've been doing, you've actually needed more energy when the sun went down. So there's a physical problem there. Okay. There's also a productivity problem. Our phones are, we know this, shrinking our attention spans. Okay. Look at the prevalence of TikTok. I mean, I can't even watch it because it's so jarring and senselessly moving and bouncing. And I'm a pretty fast talking guy. And for me, it's overwhelming. Right. So how do you think? You're going to engage in reading Tolstoy after that or anything with 
a vastness and an emotional depth that could not otherwise be reached through the spirit of a longer time. So what, what we're doing is um, killing our, our, our attention and our productivity. That's the P. So 31% of our time on our phones is spent bookmarking, prioritizing, and switching. Everybody knows what this is. What do you do when you want to watch a show on Netflix? You spend all the time trying to decide what to watch, right? Like you're like, do I want new and noteworthy? Do I, do I want TV dramas based in a hospital? Do I want TV dramas based in a hospital just in the ER? You know, and like you're, and then you have to cross reference in a Rotten Tomatoes and you got to watch the trailer on YouTube because they don't put that in there because then it would prevent you from staying on. So you're just killing yourself. So just three P's of problems with cell phones. I think the biggest single change we need to do is get them out of the bedroom. And when I tell people about this, they have two big complaints, by the way, Chase. The first complaint everybody has is this my alarm clock. When did we decide to stop? They're the cheapest things to buy at Walmart. They're less than $10. I have an alarm clock right here. This is the one I use. It's wonderful. It's white. I can I can send you the link if you want to put in the show notes. I buy them in bulk because it's small enough to fit in my suitcase. I leave one in my suitcase. I change it to whatever. Why do I have to take it in my suitcase? Because there's no, there's no alarm clocks in hotels anymore. There's just a charger beside the bed. Like, are you kidding me? I plug, plug my phone in the bathroom when I'm in a hotel. So that's, I want to just go right away and say, you got to buy an alarm clock. Okay. If that's your problem, buy an alarm clock. And then people always say, oh yeah, well, I'm very important. I get, I get, I could get called in the middle of the night. And to that, I say, no, you're not. You're really, <laughs> you're really not that important. I hate to tell you this. And if you really do have a sick sister who might text you at 3am or, or whatever, like get a landline. The the telecom companies are desperate to sell you one. It's ten dollars a month because no one wants one. And you give that number, the bat phone number, to your five closest people, your boss, your one direct report, your sick mother, your sick sister, and then that knowing that your closest people have a way to reach you actually allows you to just go to bed and know well if there's an emergency they can reach me. And so we have told all of our family members our our landline. You don't know it. None of my friends. It's just, we've just told our parents and our, you know, sister. So emergency people. And then we say, call twice, just call twice if you need us. Cause then not only will we hear it, but we'll be like, Oh, it's, it's our family calling. It's not a spammer who, who it's illegal in Canada, by the way, to call after 8 PM and before 8 AM. So if you are paranoid of that, then you just turn your ringer on before you go to bed. I solved it for you. All you got to do is do it. Uh, this the the cell phone thing is real. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of also um, commentary, or I would say self commentary about. Well, I'm actually working because I work in digital media, so I'm me, you know, listening to this podcast or um, or posting to Instagram or whatever. And yet, what part of the way I think about the phone is just some sort of baseline discipline around it, whether it's the three P's, for example and being aware of them and how to counteract them or just some, some sort of restriction. I think I love the restriction, you know, in the bed, uh, in the bedroom, for example. Um, and I employ others at different times. I have found recently that my ability to set my phone down for long periods of time has dramatically increased because simply of intention. Like I, I'm going to walk up to the coffee shop with no cell phone. How crazy. It feels good. It feels weird at first, doesn't it? Yeah. You feel naked. Like, Oh my gosh, what happens if I get run over by a car? I won't be able to call 911 or, you know, these absurd things that pop. Um, any other, you know, on that same topic of things that we ought to be as, as the guy who's, you know, or answer around awesome. And you're saying all these things for us to do Uh any other, you know, uh, I would call it, genre of things i use the phone because mm-hmm. i think a lot of people that are listening to the show are yeah or have a problem over they over index on their phone but are there any yeah. other universes that are sure negative consequence that you think we ought to pay attention to in order to preserve enhance make our lives better richer whatever well i have noticed in society i haven't talked about this before but i've noticed that there is a real um, conversation happening. Uh, Andrew Huberman um, has put out that really famous alcohol uh, podcast, long form alcohol podcast that uh, seems to show or he seems to suggest that you know, even small doses of alcohol um, can be detrimental to your uh, 
uh, brain. Now, uh, I'm not him, so I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's I've noticed a lot more like kind of like people are going to extremes on a lot of things. Like uh, I, I will never have alcohol. I will never consume cannabis or I will never consume sugar. I will never consume gluten. I will never consume dairy. I will never con- – there's a lot of that happening. And um, I really like the phrase from Sarah Silverman that she writes about in her memoir, The Bedwetter, and she talks about heavily, although there's no article online, but she talks about all the time, which is simply make it a treat. Make it a treat for for assorted poisons you enjoy. I would just say the adage, make it a treat, is really beneficial. It's not dissimilar to the whole everything in moderation thing, Mm -hmm. but I think it avoids – the snapback effect of everyone suddenly cutting out sugar and then, you know, and then you suddenly stop cutting out sugar because it's sugar is really delicious. You know, or, you know, you, you, what are you going to do? Never eat a chocolate bar again? Like, you know, so um, I just I haven't got a formulated view on it, but I do think the premise of make it a treat is a nice, healthy thing to apply for. And I like to use the phrase assorted poisons because you already know. You don't need anyone to tell you what you're taking that isn't good for you. If you're smoking, you probably know it's not good for you. If you're drinking, you probably know it's not good for you. But you do it anyway because you like it and it's fine. But just make it a treat. And so I think that adage is helpful and I'd like to codify it into something that works for me. But for now, make it a treat works. I love it. I love it. Now, uh, again, I'm going to just plug the book here for a second. Our Book of Awesome. Your yeah. first your first book back in the awesome category. Yes, in a decade. In a decade. Uh-huh. So, so again, congratulations. This is where you can find a lot of this information. It's brilliant. Um, and also, uh, got, did I your got, copy ever arrive, by the way? Because I feel like indeed. I mailed it. It did? Indeed. Okay, good. Because we're having, you know, I think there's just, I'm in Canada. So when I, <laughs> I'm always like, did th- the things come? Did it make it? I'm I'm in South Canada, so it's basically yeah, you know, like South Canada. Um, I have a selfish question, and this is in an area that I am doing a lot of research, a lot of personal development. Uh, I'm writing a lot. In fact, that was what I was writing this morning when I mentioned it earlier in our show. Here, um, it is around fulfillment. And uh-huh. I believe there's a difference between success and fulfillment. Yes. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if when I say fulfillment, if you can tell me sort of what you think of, and as an extension of this question, what, um, not only what you think about, what are you reminded yeah. of, but what are some things that you actively do that you believe cultivate fulfillment in your life? Yeah. So I, I struggle with this as well. And I wrestle with it as well. I always think about it as the um, paradox between ambition and contentment. You know, it's like you have the ambition in order to achieve your goals, but what are you going to turn it off? You know what I mean? And then it suddenly, so I, I also wrestle with this. It's a very big thing in my life as well. Why am I still writing books? You know, like the first book sold super well. I should be hang it up, Neil, like you're done, you know, but um uh, here's the thing I'd say. I'm gonna I'm gonna use another phrase borrowed from a mutual friend of ours, Jonathan Fields, mm-hmm. um, Jonathan. who 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 has a great phrase, and I don't know if he coined it or if he attributes it to someone, but he says, I wanna I wanna live the life of an artist with the impact of an enterprise with fuck you money in the bank. <laughs> I wanna live the life of an artist. With the impact of an enterprise, with fuck you money in the bank. And I thought that's a really cool one. So I, I kind of, you know, that's my, I had that one kind of floating around my brain like a fortune cookie. And then I have another one that I've sort of just been thinking about to myself lately, which is just success is, or you could say fulfillment is. Uh, I got to be careful because you want. Yep. So, I'm, so, I'm actually drawing a, a pretty serious distinction between the two and some of the new work that I'm Yeah. I'm well, well, well. The, the how you know you made it, at least to me right now, is could I have lunch with my wife? That That is a weird little metaphor, but it, it, it belies a whole bunch of other things that would have had to have worked in order to get there. It, it means that we uh, both have time in the middle of a weekday to have a connection together, like to have a bowl of soup. Not today, because I'm talking, I'm talking to you right now, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, like, could I, does that, does that, does that blossom? bloom uh, uh, frequently where you 
she's like, are you around for lunch? Like, yeah. Are you free? And we just have lunch, me and my wife. Like that's a really cool little metaphor for success to me. I think mm -hmm. I like that one. And then, um, so I gave you one phrase and then I gave you one like example of like, when I have lunch with my wife, I'm like, I made it. You know, I could sit in the backyard, I could look at the tree and it's Tuesday. Like I'm doing that on a Tuesday, you know, like how that even happens. You're not going to be sitting outside very much longer in Toronto. It's November. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's uh, it's going to get cold. But but another thing Leslie taught me when I, when I first started dating her, you know, she, I told her, I hate, I hate winter. It's so cold. My teeth are chattering. Brr. And she's like, okay, you live in Canada? Right away, she's like, you love winter. It's great. You need new boots. You need a new jacket. And we're going to get you into skiing because you just need to find things that you like to do outside. And now you're going to love it. And she's like, she's right. She just, <laughs> she, she chiropractic adjusted my mind about winter. Now I love, now I love winter. There's different bird. I mean, I got really into bird watching in the pandemic. There's different birds that come through in the winter. I'm like, oh, it's a good chance to see owls now. I'm into it. Um, and then, Look, um, on success, you can define it any way you want. Um, for me, in my life, I I think I have to I have to think of it as family first. Like, is the marriage strong, healthy, and satisfying for both people in it? Then that's the center point. Then are our kids, you know, uh, relatively, you know, happy and well adjusted, and like, you know, are they provided for, and are they are they attached to us, and you know, that that sort of whole body of work, and that's by the way where my wife has really started to to really grow. She's becoming a parenting coach under the tutelage of Dr. Laura Markham, who I've had on my podcast, who's wonderful. I wrote the book. If anyone's listening, who's a parent, peaceful parent, happy happy kids, which is just a wonderful book about about how to control your own trauma and emotions, so you don't manifest them on your kids which is what all of us do um, and then outside of those things it's like do we have the lifestyle that we need not that we want um and uh leslie is really i come from an immigrant background so i come from hard scrabble scratch it till you make it like my dad was like wanted to make it by coming to the new world and like he really really so that's in me right whereas leslie kind of comes from she wouldn't necessarily so she comes from a family that did make it like uh, they made it a while ago, you know, and so her view is somewhat different, which is that doesn't create happiness. I already know that I went to private school and high school and there was just as many, if not more problems there, you know, and so I, I, she is of the more aware vantage point of the fact that money is not necessarily an ingredient into happiness and therefore we would be happy in a cardboard box as long as we loved each other. It's a healthy, healthy thing for me to have in my life because otherwise, if I was with another person like me, we'd be cranking 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know? And, and mm -hmm. I wouldn't have somebody saying, like, you got to be home at four. The kids come home at four. Dinner is always at five. Bath is at six. Bedtime's at seven. Man, I was putting four kids to bed by myself till 9.30 last night. And I was also enjoying it because I couldn't do anything else. I had to be with them. It was her LNO, remember? Yeah, for <laughs> LNO. That's right. So she was gone. I got well. The babysitter I, I wanna... left at eight, and then the kids weren't asleep, and so we had to keep going. So, look, I didn't answer your question, but I gave you a bunch of things that prove to you that I'm still thinking about it. Well, this is part of the journey, right? That's one of the reasons I'm asking and spending my time writing about it. And again, speaking of writing, congrats on your latest book, our book yeah. of awesome, the celebration of the small joys that bring us together. It's out now. We'll time the podcast with. Uh, your book hitting the streets. Uh, congratulations. First new book from you uh, in a decade. And where else would you steer our attention? Of course, we're very good at, at purchasing books and helping authors. Um, um, yes. Especially or pre-ordering them. But well, our, our book of awesome is just our book of awesome.com. Luckily, no one had bought our book of awesome.com. So I got it. And it's a 432 page hardcover from Simon and Schuster with over 500 awesome things. And I called it our because I took out, I don't know if you saw this, I took out my face, I took out my bio, I took out my acknowledgements, I took out the dedication. The book actually culminates in a cacophony of awesome from voices that you can't see, but you can hear from around the world getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as the book progresses. So it just, then in the back of the book, because you have the galley, but the actual yeah. thing is just, the, the back of the book is two point font, another 200 awesome things that aren't in the book. That's it, that's the whole back. <laughs> and I'll so, give you a couple examples. The moment you first figure out how to whistle, 
knowing that you get to finish the juice so drinking right from the carton. <laughs> Trying an old pair of jeans and they actually fit. The, yeah, these are it, the whole back of the book. It's just a it's a treat. It's a lovely little uh, creative discovery. So wait, you have that? I'm looking at it. Oh wow! This okay, is, this cool. Is that's the amazing. jacket. This is the. Oh the right, right, right. Oh, that's great. That's amazing not, that you not, have that. Not the, not the uh, galley. No, this is. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, our book of awesome is for the book, and I'm just Neil dot blog. So if you want to check out anything I'm up to, it's just n e i l dot blog. Neil dot blog. Still Tim Ferriss's idea. Awesome! Thank you so <laughs> much for being again another guest for coming back uh, for a second appearance here. Congrats on the new book. Thanks for giving us a million things to take care of ourselves, our happiness, our attention, our gratitude for being in this world. And I appreciate you, my dear friend. Thank you, Chase. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And and people that want to hear Chase's three most formative books, come listen to him on my podcast next fall. It's coming soon. Talk to you soon again, Neil. Thanks very, very much for being on the show. To everybody out there in uh, the Chase Driver Show land, thank you so much for listening, watching. Until next time, we bid you adieu. All right, that's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want you to let you know that in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also... I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right. I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment. But trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I want to say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.